Hello and welcome back to the Press Room Podcast, supported by Ride WA, sponsored by Nutter Butter Australia. More on that later. But gee, it is good to be back. Good to be back on another Monday or whichever day of the week you were listening to. Uh, last week's episode with Luke Platt was an absolute cracker. It certainly was a hit with everyone and I'm really uh, glad everyone enjoyed it. And um, yeah, if you didn't already, leave a review for me on Apple Podcasts. And uh, if you're on Spotify, what you can do is hit that little alarm bell sort of clock thing uh, that lets you know when an episode goes live so you get it straight away. That'll be really good. And um, hey, I thought this week we're going to go to the dirt, okay? We're going to the cyclocross and at the moment it is in peak season for the CX. Vanderpoel, Van Art, uh, Pidcock, they're all coming back. It's a bit of a Christmas miracle and so the cyclocross scene is absolutely popping off. And this week's guest, Cameron Mason, let me tell you. I've been following him for a long, long time. He was the third rider of the three riders in Todd Pidcock's uh, original cyclocross team and um, watching his progression so far he is slowly moving into the top sort of echelon of the cyclocross racing as a non-Belgian or Dutch rider and so just keep an eye out for him and his results at the World Cups at the Super Prestige because I guarantee you he will be fighting for victories in the World Cups maybe before the season's over uh, but certainly into next season as well and he's got a pretty good chance of making it on the road. So uh, we sat down with Cameron um, a few weeks ago and we chatted everything. It's a ripping podcast, you know, going through the skills required to be an effective cyclocross rider uh, and at the top of the tree. We talk about Formula One and how there are similarities between Formula One and cyclocross, if you're a fan of that. Uh, we talk about everything, you know, what's it like racing against Van der Poel, Van Aert, um, Pidcock, all those sorts of guys. And um, there's even a bit of cat talk as well. So, look, it's got it all, and um, this episode is, well, it's brought to you by Nutter Butter. Okay, so here in WA, there is a peanut butter brand, my word, it is so good. Peanut butter brand called Nutter Butter, all right? They do crunchy, they do smooth, they even do granola. Now, I've been getting this peanut butter for ages. Uh, Bert is the Bert's the man, he's behind the scenes here of Nutter Butter, and look, it is so good. I don't know what they do to make it... You know, it's the texture, you know, it's just the pure peanuts, a little bit of salt, uh, it's the good stuff, you know, none of that craft style, it is just pure nuts, what we all love, and um, it's got to be something to do with the blades, uh, the blades or the peanuts, I don't know, it's just so nice, so look, you can get 20% off, 20% off for WA listeners, sorry everyone else, but we'll work on that, press room. In all capitals, that's the discount code. Put that in. Get yourself 20% off a kilo tub and get you through the week. And um, there's a big competition coming up too this week. Stay tuned on the Instagram page. There's going to be a massive competition to win a lot of peanut butter, okay, a lot. So check them out and a big thanks to them for supporting this episode. Uh, Look, enjoy this one. Cameron Mason, Trinity Racing, Cyclocross. Let's get to it. It's episode six. Cheers, guys. All right, welcome back to the Pressroom Podcast. We're here with another episode. So far this season, we've had road, we've had track, we've had photographers, journalists, uh, but what we're missing on this pod so far is uh, a cyclocross um, element to the pod. And that leads me to today's guest, which is Cameron Mason. Cameron, how are you going, my friend? 
Hi, guys. Yeah, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. No worries, mate. Um, listen, uh, Cameron, can you start us off with a brief introduction of yourself? Say how how old you are, where you're from, and um, who you currently race for. Yeah, so I'm 21 uh, from Linlithgow in Scotland, which is like in the middle bit, and uh, racing for Trinity Racing on mountain bike, road, gravel, and cyclocross. So um basically all disciplines that i managed to do this year and yeah that's my thing okay and mountain bike and road uh and those two disciplines um do any of them are you focusing more on one or the other um this year i didn't do so much mountain bike because of a, a elbow injury i got back in april so because of the kind of complexity of that, I wasn't able to actually mountain bike for, for a good kind of five, six months. So I took up a bit more road than normal towards the end of the road season, which, yeah, I learned loads from like the, yeah, in the past, I've never really kind of focused on it so much. I've always enjoyed the off-road stuff more, um, but it worked quite well to, to prep for the UK road national champs and yeah, I managed to get around that, and then it it led me in quite well to the, to the cross season, which started about a month ago. Mm, okay, and say for example, when you do some road racing, I assume when you do some road racing, you do a little bit of road training. Same with mountain bike, um, as your focus switches from one to the other, do you um, find yourself like you know the fire to ride the others? Like you do mountain bike for a while, then you're itching to get on the cyclocross bike or um a little bit like yeah you always the grass is always greener so I think the you yeah it it depends like I I do get into my groove like yeah but it's just about that variety like for me I ride my road bike maybe 80 90 percent of the time in training at the moment and the other kind of 10 20 percent is is off-road so at the moment that's like one ride a week on my cross bike um not including the kind of obviously the racing I'm doing at the moment, but the training is mainly on the road just because of how kind of, yeah, getting that quality. Um, but when I've got free rain at home, yeah, it does just depend. Like I could spend 20, 25 hours a week on the mountain bike. Um, but it just depends who I'm riding with, what, what, like, cause you, you know, like the people you ride with make a big difference as well. It's mm-hmm. easy to rack yeah. up massive mountain bike kilometers. If you've got, like a really good training partner who wants to mountain bike um mm-hmm. and same thing with the road like if you've got training buddies who just want to yeah like ride on the road all the time um so yeah it just depends but i'd say yeah i do default back to the road but um something i did a lot of last year in lockdown when we had no racing um was just take most of my riding onto gravel so i would just ride my gravel bike almost every day and but those rides could vary loads in in surface um but to keep myself kind of interested almost every day the route would be different and i would ride at least one bit of new trail or new area um because when you're training yeah four or five hours you can get quite far away from home and i really enjoyed the kind of exploration side and my diverge i was riding last year was just perfectly set up that i had the the one by mullet set up which I can ride at like 40k an hour on the flat with um, the ju- the jumps down at the bottom of the cassette are really big, but you can do it. And then you can then just go up 
really steep single track. And I just love that bike for getting the training done, but then also being able to just ride anywhere and not feeling restricted at all. Um, but then also feeling like you're on a fast kind of racy bike. And that's what I like to do. I like to just go really fast, but on all of the different terrains. Hmm, okay, that's cool. Uh, it's, it's pretty interesting because I guess in some elements of mountain bike and cyclocross, you lose the speed, you know, that you get from from uh, road. But, um, hey, can you explain um, to me, and I guess people listening, uh, cyclocross is, we have a pretty good scene here in Perth and WA, and in Australia it's okay overall. Um, but in terms of how your cyclocross season is structured, um, we know, for example, in the road, you know, you've got your grand tours, you've got your classics, you've got your week-long tours. How is it sort of structured for cyclocross? Yeah, so the season starts as early as kind of end of September, um, but that's mainly in Belgium, uh, the first kind of UCI races, um, and it will run all the way through to kind of mid to end of February. Um, but within that, the main races are uh, 15 World Cups and then there's the European champs, which is always really important for the, the Belgians and the Dutch. And then there's the there's the kind of North American champs as well uh, in each kind of area. And yeah, this kind of main goal of everyone's season is the world champs, which are normally kind of end of January, start of February. And yeah, the 15 World Cups is a bit of a reform for this year. Uh, in the past, it's been more like six or seven but there's almost a World Cup every weekend now. So that's, yeah, there are a lot of pros and cons to that and how they've kind of reformed that season. And some bits I agree with, some bits I don't. Um, it makes it quite hard to be a Belgian rider because of the depth that the Belgians have. There's only a set amount of riders who can go to each World Cup. So there are some really good good riders that are missing out on racing these these world cups so they but, have a but set Karen, why would they miss out is there a, is there any like how many can race yeah you're only allowed i think it's eight riders um from each oh. nation um so you've got like a race like zonhoven which is traditionally a super prestige which you anyone is free to enter like any australian new zealand or anyone who can just enter um and that's the same with the belgians so for, you would have maybe 15, 20 kind of elite Belgians there. Mm, and then mm. it turns into a World Cup and they set a limit on each nation. Um, so there's a lot of these right, top riders, maybe top 20, top 30 in the world riders who aren't allowed to start at these World Cups. So I think, yeah, it disadvantages the big nations in that respect, but it advantages the, um, the kind of smaller nations because so they get their opportunity to race kind of maybe a bit close to the front but yeah for, for for as long as those guys aren't at the race i think it's bad because yeah you need you need a system that makes the elite level the elite level um so that's important okay and is it the uci points that dictate who gets in out of that say 20 Belgian yeah so you, yeah i think it's the if you're in the top four ranked of your own country um, so if the, the top four Belgian rider, you get automatic selection and then the nation, the federation have another four that they can then select freely. Oh. So um, it's, yeah, I think that that other four slots is quite a tight selection, you'd imagine, because uh, the first four are pretty easy. It's like 
is a bit and and Ertz and all of them and yeah. then those others a little bit harder so um I'm sure every weekend there's internal politics of like who's going who's not going and that's really and that's stressful that's like quite yeah, yeah it's quite a difficult thing even if you're a pro bike rider and you don't know if you're racing at the top level you don't know if you're going to be allowed to race at top level whereas for me I don't have any of that kind of uncertainty like yeah there's a world cup this weekend and that's it's what I'm supposed to do. So there's no kind of uncertainty around that. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, good for you. Uh, so there's 15 World Cups. Okay. Yeah. 15 World Cups. And is there, uh, do they do like a, um, is it like an overall points table? Yeah. So there's a, an overall win, World Cup winner for the 15 World Cups, but five of those World Cups have a separate U23 World Cup race. So mm-hmm. at the moment, the two World Cups I've done have just been elite World Cups where anyone who's not a junior can ride them. Whereas this weekend in Tabor is a separate U23 World Cup and there will be a separate World Cup series and all of that. So for me as a U23 rider, those are kind of more, more of the goals, um, kind of high level kind of targets because it's my own opportunity to race at the front of a, of a World Cup. Mm, okay. Um, okay, very interesting. So how's your, um, well, actually, this one more, I'll get into the, um, the under-23 and elite in a, in a moment, but how is your team, Trinity, structured? So the first time that I heard about Trinity was, um, I guess, in the beginning when uh, Tom Pidcock was part of the team um, and it was Pidcock, one, and maybe it was only two or three riders on there. It might have been an Irish rider on there. I can't remember. But how is the team structured? How many riders are on Trinity? And um, how does it work in terms of staff and helpers and that sort of stuff? Yeah, so Trinity kind of formed off the back of the Wiggins road team. So as that team folded, uh, Tom needed a set up to support the kind of in-between period that he had from being a domestic rider to being world tour. Um, and they basically just kind of, yeah, created this setup for him to to do all of these disciplines. So the first thing that they needed to do in that was uh, create a, a cross team. So that was the Trinity racing team with just me, myself, me, uh, Tom, and then Abby May Parkinson. So ah, yeah. off the back of that, they then uh, created their road team. Um, and I think, it, yeah, maybe like 12 riders. And then this year, there are probably there were probably twelve riders. But then the Map Inform team, a lot of them guested for us. They they're in partnership the the Australian development team. Oh, so really? The kind of idea with that is that they kind of share riders and share talents and all this. So, um, three of those riders came over to the UK and raced mm-hmm. in the kind of yeah big uk races and then also some belgian races um and then the other part of trinity is their mountain bike their uci mountain bike setup um which i'm a part of as well and they raced world cups all year and then also the the cross team at the moment um which which i'm on okay wow okay i didn't know about the um i didn't know there was a link between inform and um so that's really interesting um yeah, very interesting. And uh, does the Trinity team 
like is there staff you know like teams of like swan years that sort of staff or yeah yeah so they um yeah they employ uh staff as full-time mechanic at service course all these things so um mm. yeah it operates as a yeah as a development team um it's kind of in the on the roadside it's it's sole focus is to get riders onto world tour um through u23 so you wouldn't okay. really see riders on the team past the u23 ranks um and then in the mountain bike it's a little bit different it functions as an elite kind of mountain bike team at the at the highest level like chris blevins a trinity rider he's won world cups he's won world yeah. champs so that's the kind of top level um mm. but they are also in that area like more of like a feeder development team for the factory specialized racing there's there's big links oh, really with trinity yeah. and specialized and specialized um, yeah. at its core so it, it works quite well as that because yeah the the factory specialized team are quite keen on keeping it the the, the best of the best elite best of the best, so yeah. if they can then put a bit of kind of support into the trinity team as more of a development side then then it works well for both for both parties mm. okay and how many people would um how many people would you have with you at a world cup in terms of helpers staff that sort of stuff yeah, well, cyclocross is quite labor intensive, so probably three or four mechanics, and then once one year, so it's quite a big operation. Um, yeah, it, yeah. If you were to add another rider to that, you would only need maybe one other person. Um, so, but just to have one rider, you you need a a fair few number of mechanics, mainly for the pits, and then also for the yeah, just all the different tasks in the day. Because it's just a lot of material to look after: three bikes, loads of wheels, all the shoes, helmets, and all the pack up. And because of the the kind of day after day racing, it takes yeah, it takes quite a bit of manpower. And three bikes, so that would have um, one to do like a bike change in the pits, and then like a spare. Uh, yeah, there would be three identical bikes. So, um, I would the bike I warm up on is the one I start with. And the other two bikes would go to the pits. Um, so if the race is super muddy, I would be changing those bikes. And that kind of third bike, yeah, is, is a spare. So if you have an issue with one of those bikes that you're changing, you just kind of slot in this other one to make sure that you can still continue to change, uh, change smoothly. Because, yeah, we can say on like an eight minute lap, we could be doing half lap changes, which means you're getting a new bike every four minutes. And that's... Yeah, it's when you start to put it like that, you realise how much of a job the mechanics have um, <laughs> and why they need more people is better. So it means, yeah, they can kind of, yeah, share the work. Wow, okay. Well, wow. all right. Well, um, on the, just moving on to the World Cups, uh, back on to the World Cups. Um, yeah. The World Cups, you're, when you get to the start line, it's not just get there first, you get to be on the start line first, you know, front row. You, you're gridded by how many UCI points you have is that right yeah okay and so for example I was watching the race uh, a couple of weeks ago um, where you started 60 you're in like the back row you were 60 or something. Yeah. and um, yeah you rode a really good race and fought your way to finish in the top 20 which is insane um, how much of a handicap is it starting at the back versus the first two rows uh it depends like it depends what the course is it depends what the conditions are like 
yeah for example on like a really fast course like a really fast narrow course like maybe Zonhoven um it's a big disadvantage because the race is already gone um like and when the speeds are so high so say you're racing around at like 20 30k an hour the speed differential that you need to make positions is really hard at that end mm -hmm. whereas if for example like yeah your average speed is like 10 12 and up 12k an hour in a super muddy race you only need to make a move you only need a couple of k an hour faster so that's when it's easier to make those moves so like for me in a muddy race like i can move up quite easily um i know the kind of places where riders would maybe back off and you can make a position but yeah like on the first lap of a really hectic race you can come around the finish and be 45 seconds back in in the space of one lap and that's all because of positioning and dealing with all the other riders and having to get off your bike at places you wouldn't normally get off. So yeah, it's, it's a, it is a disadvantage. It just depends. Like at Overizer, it didn't make a huge difference for me. I was riding through the field anyway. Um, it would have been interesting to see if I'd start at the front, but I don't really kind of think about that. Um, yeah. The, the top guys, like if they started at the back, they would still be racing for the front. Um, really like yeah it the 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 natural order of the race will take its place um it's just that if you're at the back you're more likely to crash or to get tangled up with another rider so it is better if everyone is kind of in their place from the start and everyone can just kind of get a good clean race but yeah, yeah. at the start of the season i didn't really have any uci points because the because of the covid year the uci yeah. reset all the UCI points at the at the world championships which I didn't do so all of the gridding was kind of based on world champs from back in January um, okay. but I've amassed a fair amount of points already so I, that issue is kind of not not a thing anymore for me so, so where would you be starting now on the grid roughly um maybe third row um mm. so yeah I think I'm like 45th in the world now so I went mm -hmm. from like 200th to 45th in the world in a couple of weeks. So the, mm. yeah, the UCI point system works if, if you're just up there. Um, but that also in some ways it doesn't because like you can go to a Belgian one day race and it would be given the C2 class, which means that to get any UCI points, you need to be in the top 10. And then the next day you go to a world cup and the field might actually be less have less depth because of the rules we were talking about before with the Belgians. Yeah. But those UCI points go down to 40th place instead of 10th place. So they don't really that they don't really match up for some reason. The World Cups are a really good place to get UCI points, but that's if you're not Dutch or Belgian because you can't get into them. Yeah. And, yeah. But for those riders to get into them, they need lots of UCI points. So, but they can't race those races. So <laughs> you see a lot like at the moment, Lander Locks is one of the Belgian riders who's kind of a victim of this system. And he's racing a lot in Czech Republic and France at these UCI races to, to try and bump him up. As, but it's, it's a vicious cycle because then this weekend there's a World Cup and there's going to be loads of riders who are going to overtake him again in points. So it's, yeah, it's tough. Mm, okay that's geez that's really interesting and i guess um you could you know some of these riders could make a you could be pretty tactical with where you race you know and 
to yep. try and make up points you know, in that way. Uh, yeah. And so I suppose surely starting at the front of a CX race, that's the best place to start, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. And the, the, the closer to the front, the better, yeah. There's no advantage at mm. all. It only gets worse when you get back. Mm. I see a lot of um, similarities for the start of cyclocross races and the start of Formula One races. Yeah, no and I think I've always had this, yeah, I've, I've chatted to my friends and stuff about it, but a qualifying format in the morning of the race would be awesome in cyclocross. Yeah. So basically a, a one-lap flying lap, one lap. that mm-hmm. each rider does, you basically make it, start, uh, make it part of practice. I don't really think there would be any disadvantage for the riders doing a quick seven, eight-minute effort or even shorter. It's not really going to be if you make it part of the weekend it will it can be an awesome spectacle people mm. will turn up earlier to watch this qualifying session they will stay all day for the women's and the men's race and then you have an extra aspect to this world cup weekend and it's a great way of gridding because one lap speed it should match up with with where people should be but all it takes is a little mistake and you've got Vanderpool mid-pack or a little crash or, and that would add a real cool kind of thing to it because you see in Formula 1 they chat about like reverse gridding and all this and that's really kind of quite controversial but this one I don't think absolutely I don't think it would make people go that crazy because it is it's like downhill it's proper qualifying mm. you if you're mm. fastest you're fastest so I would yeah. love to see a, a format like that oh mate that would be so cool um, it would be kind of interesting too because on different courses a lap might be longer or shorter and then you might get to yeah. see like um, you know and I think discrepancies it, yeah it were, it maybe wouldn't work well in, in cross country mountain bike because the laps are more like 15 minutes so that's quite an effort in more like 10 minutes but it would depend on the course because yeah that one lap you were doing qualifying you probably wouldn't ever do that quick in the race so it would be a bit shorter um, mm-hmm. but you are just trying to think of something that's not too long that you basically like 11 a.m. is qualifying and then 3 p.m. is race. So there's plenty of time there. Um, but that, yeah, I'd, I'd be really cool. I'd love to see that. Right. That is so good. You're going to get yourself on the uh, the committee. UCI committee. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there's the, there's the rider, there's a UCI rider representative for each discipline. And for cyclocross, I think it's... Uh, uh one of the Czech Republic riders, yeah, oh, yeah. Nash. Uh, yeah, that I've Katarina. forgotten her name. Katarina. Yeah, Katarina Nash. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, she's pretty vocal about things. So it would be interesting. And the sport, like what they are doing with reforming the World Cup, is it's yeah, it's making things more international and stuff. But cyclocross is just the perfect platform to to like make it really data focused, make it really like viewer focused because it's not like road racing with the logistics of camera bikes and all this it's it's a venue it's a set mm-hmm. venue you've mm-hmm. got a, a set tv crew all of this stuff that you can do stuff with like imagine yeah. having proper gps tracking and timing yeah. tracking yeah, with splits because yeah the racing is so close and mm. you watch a formula one race and the viewer just has so much data and so much like control yeah. of what they can see with the with the listening into radio and stuff so imagine watching an hour cross race 
and there being all this data on the screen, who's going back, who's coming forward, who's doing what walks. Mm. And then also having mics on the team managers and getting cool little snippets of yeah. Sven going like move up Lars, move up Lars. Or like yeah. the idea of that would just be would just be awesome because it's only an hour. It's not big. The thing is with road cycling and viewing, it's like you have to really know what's going on at all points. And that could be four hours of viewing. But you just turn up on a Sunday afternoon or wherever you are in the world and just watch one hour of cross racing where it's fastest to the finish. It's quite a simple kind of viewing <laughs> viewing experience. But if you could have all this data and all this kind of like drama around it, like, yeah, like call up of the riders and the qualifying results being different from what's expected. Like I could go and I could qualify really good and get a front row grid and there'd be all the kind of hype around that. Um, I think that would be really cool. Yeah, man. That's so cool. Mate, let's just November 11th, 2021. <laughs> we were talking about it. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, Again, back to the start, you know, they're hectic. You know, it's just a mass sprint. It's it's pretty unique. The clip-ins must be, like, crucial. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not very good at it. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, that kind of shows a bit in my starts. Um, it's just you just have to be drilled in it. You have to just not even think about it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you're thinking about it, the race is already gone. So, um, mm. yeah. And so... You know, you can have a really good grid start, um, but if maybe your your standing start is not uh, as good as others, you know, you could lose your advantage. And so do you, like, train, uh, work on explosive power uh, for those starts or? Like, yeah, the the, yeah, the starts are kind of broken down into two things, like the actual technique and the mental side of starting, like the like having really good reaction time and, and the kind of mm. muscle memory of clipping in. But then there's also just the pure power, which is your kind of, yeah, maybe 30 second max. Um, yeah. It depends what the start is like. Like if it's if it's just like 300 meters tarmac to the first corner, or if it's like start into a big climb, um, how much that effort is. Because basically for the first 20, 30 seconds, everyone starts totally full gas. And then yeah. it just depends what's after that. Um, whether it settles a bit and people try and move up and over the top and um, whereas your standard kind of run into the first corner whole shot is just yeah a maximum maximum effort yeah and when you said uh, working on like um, your reaction timing do you actually is there like a technique that you follow for that um yeah I don't think it's quite as important as in f1 like the being like yeah. really switched on like that once you're in it you're in it and the start mm. is only one aspect of the race and you yeah moving up and down is probably easier than in formula one when you've got like a massive car so you yeah you, you can just kind of slide <laughs> up and down um yeah but yeah the reaction's weird like we start on red and green lights kind of like in in the f1 but sometimes we start on the whistle so the difference between a visual wow. kind of cue and a and mm. a and audio cue is I notice like you're just looking for something and then with no noise, it just changes and you have to go. Um, whereas a, a whistle is quite a kind of fight or flight. You just go. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. that took a little bit of getting used to. And we used to actually start some races would have four uh, red lights that would go on slowly and then they would go green. And cool. that was really weird because there was a certain timing at the end of those four lights that was random 
they they got rid of that because people were trying to preempt it. Now it's just red to green. No, no nothing in between. So that's nothing. Not you know, uh, swimmers and uh, like hundred meter sprinters on the athletics track, for example, I know that they train specifically uh, their reaction timing. They train their minds from memory, uh, not to like hear the gun go off and then they go. They they're trained that as soon as they hear the sound of the gun go off they've like trained their mind to that triggers a movement in the body which propels them forward which i believe in running and swimming is throwing their left arm back to then drive forward um to start their sprint and so it's not yeah. you know ready set go and then they go it's ready set go the arms up but that's how they yeah. train i wondered if you if it was a, a gun off for the cyclocross it could be like you know foot in you know that sort of stuff. Yeah, I just wonder. Yeah, it's as in, I think I don't know. I I don't know if it would ever go that far in cyclocross because, say, you were to time, the advantage of doing something like that, and it would come down to what like point one of a second. That point one of a second over an hour race ends up being <laughs> yeah. not very significant. Whereas <laughs> when you're talking about these guys who are like twelve second races or thirty second races, that's a lot. That's a lot. Of, a lot to yeah. gain. Um, Margins are smaller. But, yeah definitely like from a mental point of view you have to be ready to go because um you have to be ready to give absolute 100 percent effort very quickly um mm. and if your body isn't capable of doing that that's when you kind of suffer um mm. so the kind of mental aspect of being like switched on from the gun uh to give 100 percent effort because when i'm out in training and i do like a max effort it's off the back of riding and that's you don't have that in the start so that's when in training I would do like standing starts. So I'd stop at the side of the road and then clip in and do a standing start to kind of try and replicate that. Okay. And outside of obviously physical strength um, uh, when you're racing, what are some really important, um, like what are some things in training that you really need to focus on um, to be competitive outside of just physical ability in terms of like technique, um, you know, training in different terrains? Like, is there anything you really focus on? Um, well, for cyclocross, like sand riding is a massive part. Um, most races in Belgium have a sand aspect. Um, and I say aspect because it's not just actual sand, but riding in ruts is a, is a real skill and something that Belgians are really good at. So, and the reason that the Belgian races have more ruts than in kind of UK racing is because they're better at riding ruts, which means that they get more pronounced. It's more likely that the riders are going to aim for the pronounced kind of rutted line and they're better at riding it, which means that they get deeper and better and faster. And if you come over to Belgium and you don't and you don't have that skill, you're just going to find it a horrible time. Like you're just never going to never going to find your rhythm. So um I'm just going to have to stop. Sorry, I've got a cat that I need to put out. Um, so I will come back and I will reset that question and we can cut it cut it in. No, Please. let's go on. Leave this in. <laughs> let's go. Listeners, well, it's good to know that Cameron is a cat person. I too am a cat person. I used to have a Russian blue called Mr. Whiskers and <laughs> he was a chunky, chunky boy. Uh, rest in peace. Speaking of chunky, peanut butter, it doesn't get chunkier than nutter butter. In WA, Bert 
is running Nutter Butter. It's his company. It is so good. It is the peak. It is the peak of peanut butter. Comes in these tubs, a kilo tub, so it'll sort you out for about three or four days. Uh, it's just pure peanuts, a little bit of salt, like nothing else added. And the texture, I don't know how he gets the texture so good. I don't know whether or not it's the peanuts, it's how they put them in the machine, the whipping process, I don't know, but it is so good. So my, uh, I guess, little award for you guys for listening is that you guys, or at least the WA cohort, you get 20% off. 20% off the greatest peanut butter known to Western Australian history. Press room in capitals is going to be the code. So I'll chuck it in the description. It'll be in there. But you can get amongst the best peanut butter on the planet. So make sure you get amongst that. Like their Facebook page. Have a look at uh, Nutter Butter Australia, Nutter Butter Oz on Instagram. Um, there's even some recipes on there that you can use the peanut butter in. But frankly, I just slap it on toast or a few bananas and good to go. So, uh, look, thanks for listening so far. Hope you're enjoying this cyclocross episode with Cameron Mason. And um, enjoy the rest of this podcast. And don't forget, if you're on Apple, leave a review. Give me a five-star review if you're really loving it. And write a bit of script, you know. Write a little bit of script. I'd love it. Thanks again, guys. And uh, thanks to Nutter Butter for supporting this episode. That's gold. I'm a big cat person, so... Um, okay. I'm happy about that. Okay, so back on uh, yeah, riding the ruts, I was watching um, the last race that you were in. It might have been the race before. I can't remember where it was, but there was a decent sand section. And um, it might have been the one where you finished 17th, actually. Uh, and there was a decent sand section. And you were you know, riding that sand line really well, the rut that was cut in. And there was, a, there was a rider on the left of you that you passed. And it was just a no man's land, you know, in that loose sand. Um, yeah. And... When you're riding, so say, you know, um, the visual for listeners is, you know, the sand pit. If one person rode the same line every single time they went past the lap, you know, there would be a nice sort of channel through there. That's what they're trying to ride through. So when you're trying to aim and ride through that rut, which is snaking all over the place, are you looking like, you know, ahead or are you looking right down at your wheel? Like how do you sort of go for it? Yeah, like the where you look makes a big difference because you've basically got this kind of, you know, the ruts can be maybe, yeah, like 15, 20 centimetres deep at some point. So the really, really pronounced one have this like dead hard pack sand at the bottom, which is what makes it so fast. Um, the best way to ride through the sand is to ride totally in the rut because you're on compacted ground and you're just going totally straight and there's just so much less resistance. But the technique of it is quite, you really have to, I always say like you want to steer the bike from the back, not from the front. So you're kind of steering with your feet and your and your legs and your knees and not really mm. from your hands. So a good kind of like thing in training would be to like practice riding the sand, but almost like hovering your handlebars over the hoods, like barely even touching them. Um, because in really soft sand, that's kind of the the way to you want to be giving power from the rear of the bike and then letting the bike do what it needs to do. When you're riding more like pronounced ruts, it's a lo- it is harder like because the, the, the margins are a lot tighter. And at that point, yeah. yeah, you have to keep your head up and, and like what you said, like not look at your front wheel. You just have to generally look down the, the course and mm. by being relaxed down your, down your middle and down your center and continuing putting pressure on the pedals, 
your bike will kind of naturally go through the rut but it's it's when you kind of it's when your center balance gets away from the rut is when you'll want to counter steer all of that so you have to stay quite centered on the bike um but yeah when you when you talk about all of those subtleties and stuff like you would then there's no way you would ride along a rut thinking about all those things the, the <laughs> idea is that you ride along the rut thinking about nothing and you're perfectly relaxed so that's what you do in training and that's yeah, yeah one of my sessions every week is is in the sun doing efforts and mm. training and mm. um some sessions are terrible you're literally just like falling off everywhere riding like an idiot like but that's how you learn you just need to have those rubbish days and then when you get to the race hopefully you can go all right I've done this already I know what I'm doing I just need to relax and yeah but that's really yeah. hard to do in a race you come absolutely blow you're blowing your doors your mm-hmm. heart rate's through the roof and you have to just take a massive deep breath and just ride ride mm-hmm. how you know you can ride um because it's when you kind of tense up and yeah all the stuff i've been saying is to try and minimize like holding the bars really tight as soon as you grip onto the handlebars that's it you've got no chance so um the riding in the sand is a real skill and it does translate over to riding in kind of mud ruts as well which you would get in a in a muddy race and the belgian and dutch riders have been like i said doing doing that for years and years so they have a lot of skill kind of kind of installed already born in there born in those ruts yeah yeah yeah. and like in in belgium a lot of the the ground is really sandy so like a lot of races just naturally have kind of sandy ground and those ruts that go in so um it's whereas in the uk we have like one or two actual sand races a year but the rest of the races just don't even have any sand it's just naturally just totally different type of racing yeah okay and do um are there riders out there that have like a preferred terrain? You know, there must be some riders that are just so good at obviously like nations would be better at some terrains than other because yeah. that's what's native to where they're from. But like, is there any distinctive riders who are just so good at riding, um, you know, in real muddy conditions? Um, some really prefer the faster sort of grassy crit styles. Yeah. I think you maybe see it a bit less now because you've got riders like, like Van der Poel and Wout Van Aert, who are good on everything. Like they can win sand races, they can win the hilliest races, all of this. So, but yeah, at, even at the moment, like you've got people like Tunerts, who is really good on the kind of more mountain bikey stuff, maybe. Ellie is a bit, is better at kind of real punchy, like crit racing almost type style courses. Lauren Swake is traditionally a real sand specialist. So it just depends. And, and for me, I'm more of like technical muddy kind of climbing races not too much running but more like using like kind of high skill high risk courses so um Mm. that kind of suits me more and yeah the hills for me come more into my kind of power to weight ratio Um, and they're just absolute flat power isn't so much my strength whereas as soon as it goes uphill it's 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 a lot better for me yeah okay that's um i would say that well, from what I've watched, that seems to be a similar style to Pidcock from what he prefers. Um, yeah. Did you say that? Yeah, I think, yeah, we share a little bit in terms of the, our, our kind of strengths is that kind of repeated kind of power. Um, like, yeah, we're very different riders, but the being able to repeat a pretty good level of power, but all the way to the end of the race, that's when you kind of can snap riders. Um, so, 
in a flat out sprint. It, but it just depends. Like he beat Wout Van Aert in a sprint in the classics. Mm-hmm. So like when it gets to it, it's always, it's never just one yeah. aspect. It's mm-hmm. what you've done up until then, all these different things. And, and for mm-hmm. me, a race that's like hard and, and lots of graft and really like really kind of, yeah, hard going that suits me because by the time we get to the later parts of the race, it maybe hasn't affected me so much. My mm-hmm. kind of top end of power doesn't drop quite as much as maybe another yeah. one, but my absolute is is not close to maybe my competitors. So the the, the way of yeah. racing is it can be very different on different courses. Mm, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um. So you've got a pretty good um like looking from the outside. Uh, now I remember. Um, I was first heard of you, Cameron, when that Trinity team was started. And, you know, you see Peacock and obviously here is really good. But I, I always used to see the other Brit on the course and um, all the person from the UK, and it was you. With having seen, like, Tom Peacock, I guess, progress through and sort of start to become the rider that everyone thinks he's going to be, is that motivating for you to see that someone outside of Belgium and Dutch uh, nations can actually make it to that top level and compete? Yeah, for sure. Like, yeah, from being his teammate and seeing what he does every day and realizing that, like, he has a load of special qualities, but at the end of the day, like, he's just doing what everyone else is doing. He's doing it really well. He's focusing on all the little things. He's he's showing up every day and he enjoys riding his bike. And those are all the ingredients to, to being a good bike rider. And, um, yeah, like, I don't think there was any doubt ever of what he was going to achieve. It's just that it's just a time of, like, when not if just so um seeing all those things happen yeah is super motivating and especially for me from how much i enjoy the off-road side of things too like seeing that there is more people are accepting kind of yeah that the balance balancing those off-road disciplines because yeah traditionally you would maybe be kind of pushed towards going into one discipline so that so that you can get the best out of it and all of that but i think for me I function best when I'm when I've got that variety and when I'm doing all these things because I think they complement each other really well. Like coming off the back of a road season into cross, I was put more well set up for than if I had just had a really long off season and done loads of training and no racing and all this. So yeah, I think the the balance is really important there. Mm. Okay. Um what do you think about Van Art and Vanderpol? What's it like to line up next to these guys? Do you feel is it intimidating? Uh, it was when I first came to Belgium, like as a first year U23, just racing for <laughs> myself. Um, yeah. And yeah, you're going around practice and these like absolute giants physically and, yeah. uh, <laughs> and kind of in life uh, going ride fastly. But then you realize like, we're just about to race the exact same course for an hour and like yeah we've both got the same opportunity to do to do what we want to do on the exact same stage and that's really empowering because um that's the great thing about cyclocross is that you can come into quite a high level um and race with these guys and for an up-and-comer that's super inspiring because you can be it you can see exactly what what it's going to be like Whereas I think in other sports and maybe in other disciplines, that top level can feel really, really far away. Um, 
So for me, the progression of riding these races and not getting very good results, but then slowly moving up and then riding them and feeling actually competitive. Like if I'd done that first race and I'd been really far removed from where the top level was, I think it would have been harder for me to link up that kind of, I want to be there because for me going to a cyclocross race, I could just say like, I just need to keep doing this, get better at it. And I can be there. Whereas in road, for example, the steps and progress that you need to make just to even start a grand tour, I just can't even, I wouldn't know where to begin to think about that. Um, yeah. so the kind of, yeah, the, the levels are a bit different between between road and cross. I see what you mean. It's, it's very interesting, a great point of it not being far away from the top level. So say, for example, for the listeners, you know, uh, a neo-pro going into their first year as a pro on the road, um, a normal neo-pro, not like, uh, you know, yeah. a Venipole or something. Um, they would go into the road race and, you know, they might not even finish their first road race, you know, versus on... Um, you know, at a World Cup, you might do your first World Cup and if you, you finish, you know, say 40th or something, it's not that far away, only four or five minutes away maybe from um, the guys finishing first. So I guess that's, that's a really good point. Yeah. And But then that that kind of, yeah, say you go and you, your first World Cup race, you get 40th, 50th and you're six minutes back or you get pulled, that last six minutes is a lot. There's a lot in that. Um, like you may <laughs> be good enough to, to start the World Cup, but... To get anywhere near the front, there's a, that's then maybe even more overwhelming. Realizing that like these guys are six minutes ahead, how do I get six minutes back mm-hmm. with when I'm training hard? I'm re- I'm training all this like, yeah. So for me, I don't know what I've done in the last few years to go from six minutes to one minute, but yeah, the the yeah, but it shows it's possible. Like there's within people is the ability to be at the top level. It's just how you go about it and for me it's I've gone about it in in a pretty good way it seems I do uh, junior coaching Cameron and um, mainly like 12 to uh, 15 years old and yeah. you know these kids are very talented but they're always like oh they're looking at the age above them say oh he's so fast or, he, or she's so good and I, I say to them you're only 13 years old all you have to do is keep riding your bike and every day you will get better because you're still growing yeah. and you're still developing, yeah. you know, and you're only 21. So it's like your peak cycling yeah. age. I mean, no one really knows what that is, but it ain't 21, you know, it's older. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know. I, so, I always think that with when people ask, like I get loads of messages from especially like young lads asking like, yeah, like how, what can I do to, to get where you are? And it's like, and yeah, say they're 12, 13, it's like at the moment, <laughs> all you have to do is find enjoyment in the bike riding enough so that you'll do it every day. And that in two years, you, you'll still be loving it because then in two years, you're going to do the same thing. You're going to ask the same questions and it's going to be the same response. Just keep doing all of the little things and enjoying them for what they are. And then in another two years, then you get a bit more into a place where you can ask specific questions like, yeah. how do I train? What do I train? What am I bad at? What am I good at? Because mm-hmm. until then, you might be bad at something just because that's just the way things are. Like for me, at yeah. 13, 14, I was bad at sprinting because I had no muscle mass and I was a little stick and I couldn't do anything about that. I wasn't going to start hitting the gym. So 
<laughs> I just, but the reason why I didn't stop or why I didn't overthink it was because I was just having too much fun riding my bike. So there wasn't space to, to, to think big picture like that. But it depends. Like if you're super, I think it's weird. Like I, my friend Isla Short, who's also a pro mountain bike rider, um, kind of top ten in the world. We were chatting about it, and we've never been kind of winners through the, through the kind of yeah. youth categories. Um, mm-hmm. and it's to be a winner, to be a, to get to that top level. I think there has to be a real winning kind of bit in you. But if you have that winner's drive and motivation as a young rider, when you can't do those things, there has to be a balance of like, if I'd been that type of rider, I would have quit because. I wasn't capable of winning. So yes. I had to learn to get enjoyment out of other parts of the sport. And that's where I got kind of my enjoyment for skills and technique and all this stuff. Um, but then when you do naturally or whatever elite reach a more elite level, you then have to learn to maybe shift your motivations in more to winning. Um, whereas a person who's always won coming up through the categories and then goes on to to mm. to winning at elite level that that bit might come easier Challenge. but then mm-hmm. if you start in the sport as an 11 year old as an as a big physically developed 11 year old and then when riders like me come up in junior and then try and compete with that that that's when you see riders kind of realize that they only really enjoyed the winning part and maybe not the other the bits where you have to work for um, mm. which i'm sure you'll see you'll see lots of in in yeah. uh, youth it's um I'm definitely going to snip this part and send it to our Junior Cycling Academy, man. It's perfect. It's beautiful. So speaking of winning um, or results, this year you've had some great results. Thanks, so yeah. can you can you, um, can you you list just a couple of your last sort of five or six races? Um, just tell everyone how you've sort of uh, your results so far this season. Yeah, so I started my cross season, uh, I think it's three, four weeks ago now with Brudevord and then Zonhoven, which looking back, like the results there, uh, 18th and 17th were, were strong and were promising. And actually within those races, like when I finished them, I, I messaged my coach and was like, yeah, like nothing has changed. Like everything is exactly how it should be like within me physically. And even though maybe the results weren't amazing compared to like what I then went on to do one week later, I already knew like I was capable of really like pushing pushing on and and just all those good feelings and I yeah my grading wasn't the best and there were a few issues we were trying to sort out with the bikes I'd only just got so I it's kind of it was kind of a good feeling of knowing there was more to come so then one week later was the world cup in overizer and I rode from yeah basically the back row all the way to ninth place in the elite world cup which is yeah is my best ever world cup result and yep. yeah only about uh i think it was a minute and a half back on the win so and during the race i was lapping at the speed of the kind of top three top five and wow. to yeah like even just one week before i knew that that type of ride was possible um because yeah all of these things i think are kind of already installed within me it's just a case of when you can get it out and get it onto the track and do it all in the right place. And that weekend last weekend was that kind of that, that time for me. So like over I went really well and I managed to get absolutely everything out. And then 
Koffenberg was the next day, which was a U23 separate race. Mm. And I was basically battling and yo-yoing with the world champ at the for the win. And it was all physical. There was no real tactics there. Um, it was like he would be faster in one section, I would be faster in another section. We'd just both be just kind of bashing each other's heads in and just suffering around this course. And up the final climb, up the cobbles, we're just literally fighting 100% just to keep to stay on our bikes because all of the mud from the field had got dragged onto the cobbles. So we're riding up kind of 20, 20, 25% cobbles on about 15 PSI in our tires and in our easiest gear, trying to just keep riding. And I had a power meter on my bike and up that final climb was 450, 500 watts all the time, just trying to keep riding. And that's what was needed just to go at maybe eight kilometers an hour, five kilometers an hour. And I was, yeah, five, six seconds behind him at the end. And, um, yeah, that was an awesome race looking back. Just, yeah, like proper awesome battle and just epic kind of slow conditions, super muddy, bike changes, all of that. So that was, <laughs> that was really cool. And then the most recent race for me was the European champs. And that was a very different type of race. Like going into it, no one had done this course, um, but it was a hilly race. Um, so I was expecting it to be really physical and just to not so much tactical, but I realized in the first lap, like there are so many guys in contention. It was like a group mm. of 15 that were fighting for the win, uh, wow. like seven Belgians, myself and loads of Dutch riders. And, um, there was a bit of whittling down process. Um, but kind of at every opportunity, I was just trying to force the pace and trying to force a split there was no real point on the course that you could get that. So in the end, it came down to kind of just battling the whole race. And I kind of, yeah, I'd already spent too many matches. So in the final, I, I kind of just missed, missed the, the front of the race and I got sixth place, which yeah, normally I would be super happy with a sixth place at European champs, but I think I had the, the capability of doing, it's like in road racing when you know, when you feel like you had better, but it just didn't work out. So. Yes, yeah, but it was it was crazy fast like it was 50 minutes of racing and we did 500 meters of climbing which is quite a lot but the average Whoa. but the average speed was 25k an hour um which <laughs> like those numbers shouldn't really add up but they do because it was just so so fast like the climbing uh -huh. was fast but the downhilling we were going at like yeah 40ks an hour just like flat out downhill so the average speeds yeah it was it makes it in in hindsight you realize why it was such a close race because at speeds like that you need to be on the wheel and mm -hmm. a group group racing really works on a course yeah. like that mm. yeah mate you've had such a good year so far you've only just started really yeah um, you must be uh you know looking forward to the next race which which is which is the next race for you uh in a couple of days on sunday in tabor so um in the czech republic another world okay. cup and yeah I'm, like I know like I said before like all the things are within me I just need to do all the little things do all the all the annoying things like travel and eating oh. well sleeping well and then when we get to the race that's the good bit that's the bit I enjoy so yeah yeah sick okay I've got um just a few fun questions uh to cool. ask you um what's the weirdest prize you've ever received uh well, the weirdest prize I almost received was a massive 
uh, duck at the Coffin Road Cross. They had a like huge, almost human-sized rubber duck, um, but only the winner got it. So I was so oh. close to receiving that. I was so bummed about that. I was bummed about not winning the race, but that prize was, was good. Um, and yeah, there's some great prizes in Belgium, like just like unlimited beer and like mm. massive bits of meat and things like that but i haven't actually won any i haven't won many bike races so um i can't really i don't have too many too many actual ones of them in my house the rubber duck i'm pretty sure this is a there's a um an award on it might be the world out of the giro and it's like whatever the queen stage is on the tallest climb of this of the race the heaviest rider to get up there in the quickest time wins like a year's supply of beer or something I'm pretty sure yeah. Lars Boom has won it once before or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a yeah. similar one. I think Arctic Tour of Norway or something when you just yeah. win your weight in salmon as well. And, uh, <laughs> Frozen salmon, and, and then yeah. there's And then there's uh, the, the gravelly race in road race in France where you win a pig. You win a oh, big Trobo. pig. Trobo, Trobo. Yeah. Uh, and oh, the cheese one. Loads, yeah. uh, I don't know, but what's the cheese one? Um, It's literally named after a a cheese and you win a giant wheel of cheese. I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure like I don't know, Ben Mike Cosmify won it last time. It's yeah. just it's it's you know, cheese is in the name. Anyway, okay. Yeah. Um do you do you follow the road racing? Like professional yeah. racing? Yeah. Who do you um who do you like to watch? Do you have like a rider you saw? Um I mean yeah, Pogacar, because he's always at the front and, like, it's easy to support someone who wins a lot. Um, but more obscure, maybe, like, you know Heinrich Hausler? He's yeah. quite, quite, quite a, like, yeah, he's got quite a cult following just because of the type of person he is, and I think that's yeah. quite funny. And yeah. also he races a bit of cross, and we've mm-hmm. chatted briefly at races, so it's nice to cool. follow someone that you, you kind of know. And mm. he's... Yeah, I always feel like when it, well, yeah, when it gets to Roubaix, you can kind of get behind him as like underdog, like he's not Belgian. Funny, and, and, and yeah, he's, he's good fun to support. <laughs> and he's like good fun to like, he looks great on the bike. So he's like yeah. classy bike rider, I think. Yeah, yeah, that's a good answer. I like that one. Um, what um, What's the weirdest thing you've heard or the funniest thing you've heard someone yell at you at a bike race? At a cyclocross race, like from the stands, has anyone yelled anything funny? Any Belgian sort of, you know? Um, I've got some guys from home sometimes come out to the Belgian races and they just spend all of race just like heckling. And their <laughs> normal heckle with me is just like, go on, Tom Pedcock. Like they will just call me and Tom like the opposite <laughs> names for the whole race. So meanwhile, yeah. Tom's racing in front of like Vanderpool. And they're just like all shouting for like, go on, Cameron, go on, Mason, go on, up, up, like, well, going around. And then I come around in like 20th and they just say, go on, Tom Pedcock. And all the yeah. Belgians next to them must be thinking like, they really don't know their riders. Um, <laughs> but like, they do like, yeah, they'll just call everyone the wrong name, which I'm, the riders definitely don't notice, but it's, they enjoy it. It's just like an hour of just lads mucking about and drinking beer and having fun. So that's it. That's so good. Um, mate, your YouTube channel. So the listeners, you've got to go and check out Cameron Mason on YouTube. Your videos are really well refined. How long ago did you start that channel? Um, ages ago, yeah, like maybe six, seven years ago. Like I feel like I've always made videos just for fun. 
um i got like a little video camera when i was maybe 10 12 just mm. like one of those cheap waterproof ones so oh, yeah. then i would just go out and like set it up and do skids in front of it and stuff so um <laughs> as i've been able to do more cool things with my sport like it just made sense to bring my camera in and film it and film my friends and stuff so mm. now i'm in a position that like loads of people want to see what i'm doing yeah. all the time so it's pretty yeah it's, it's cool it is cool, man. It gives you really good insight into the racing as well, particularly um, when you're sort of chugging through the field. And um, uh, it kind of, what I notice is it really gives a proper appreciation for how hard a course can be, you know, because it's, you know, it's focusing right on you as you're going through a particular terrain. Um, it's really good. Who um, who films it while you're racing? Uh I've got a filmer, a Belgian filmer called Dave, who's a good friend now. And he, uh, yeah, he started filming for me a couple of years ago and he's just got better and better, obviously, as, as, you, yeah. as you do it more. And like the first season that we worked together, it was like, yeah, like 30, 40 races. And I basically made a video from every single one. I don't know. Now I look back, I don't know how I had time to edit it all because <laughs> it's just so much footage and stuff. And I'm already three videos behind and oh. if I raced into the season so <laughs> I definitely feel it I feel it kind of adding off already so maybe I need to get an editor but um yeah I enjoy editing them that's the thing so when I really yeah. sit down and just do a nice edit I enjoy it but it's just kind of finding that time to to kind of commit yeah. to it but. yeah cool man that's awesome um now I already asked you this before the show but um you have been to Australia before and you know um you have family in Perth. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So family friends in Perth and then family friends in Brisbane. So, but I've never actually really ridden much around there. And I had planned to actually go to map headquarters in, I think they're Melbourne. Mm -hmm. and, Melbourne. Yeah. Um, do some saddle cross racing and stuff. But that perfectly aligned with COVID in, in uh, kind of April last year. So that never happened. But no, I'd love to, like, they've always invited me. Um, offered offered to kind of to host me and stuff so that would be a really cool thing to to go and do the racing out there and we have um in perth we have uh down in the southwest of of um of western australia it's like renowned yeah. for its riding um and gravel off-road racing everything yes. it's insane but we've got this gravel race called seven um and it's named after it's got seven like just silly climbs in it um, and it's yeah. 150 k's, like three and a half thousand meters, uh, and it's just this massive event. And so, whenever the stars align and you do come to uh, West yeah. Australia, you'll have to line it up with seven. I'll send you the link so you can check it out because cool. it's, it's really really cool. Um, yeah. And yeah. All right, mate. Well, um, look, we've been chatting for an hour. Thank you so much for your time, my friend. It was really really interesting and um i know the cyclocross community here in wa and australia are going to go wild for this and um hopefully you'll have a few fans you know calling out your actual name at the uh yeah <laughs> at the next yeah. races so um yeah look mate thanks a lot man. come on yeah thanks for having me it's good fun And that is episode six done and dusted. 
big thanks to Cameron for coming on the pod. We had uh, we had a lot of fun chatting, and um, I've been keeping in touch with him. He's just coming back from a small break in Spain, and he's ready to hit the second half of the CX season hard when the big heavies are coming back. So, uh, yeah, make sure you follow him along. Get that GCN pass. That is the money when it comes to watching the CX. And uh, check out his YouTube channel. Just Google Cameron Mason on YouTube. Uh, it's really good. He does some really nice videos, some great editing. It's very high-quality stuff. And it gives you a, a really good insight as to how hard the racing is, how hard the courses are, and it really captures the intensity of the race, and particularly when he's just starting at the back early season, and he's just chinging through these riders like they're standing still. So you get a really good feel for how strong Cameron is, um, and which is even more impressive when you see how small he is compared to the other riders. So um, he's certainly very talented. And um, yeah, hey, leave a review if you love this podcast, leave a review on Apple, leave a review on anything, you know, send me a message on Instagram, say you loved it. Um, hit that little bell thing on Spotify and just keep, you know, keep sending the love if you're liking the podcast. I love hearing about it. And um, hey, someone's going home with a lot of peanut butter this week. The competition's coming this week on Instagram, probably on Facebook too. Um, anyone that is listening to this podcast and happens to live in WA, I'm sorry everyone else, you know, I'll work on that, but anyone in WA, you can get 20% off the greatest peanut butter in Australia, press room, all capitals, use it, and um, yeah, get yourself some of the good stuff. All right, legends, I'll see you again next week, we've got another belter of an episode coming along, thanks for the love, I'll see you later.